Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. Well, this week it's more a case of bringing you culture, whether I like it or not. It's been a long few weeks. I've been on the road a lot, and uh, I had a lot of work to do on a speech that I just gave this weekend at the latest NJP event. So I've had to, uh, I decided to just give a topic, uh, retreat to what I know, and what I know is Roman history. So today's topic is the rise of Rome and particularly the Punic Wars, and especially the Second Punic War, the war of, with Hannibal. Uh, I've decided to do this for a couple other reasons. One, Warren has mentioned that he feels that he doesn't have much knowledge of Roman history and is interested in finding out. And I think there's a lot of people who are in a similar situation where they know bits and pieces or maybe little episodes of it, but uh, don't have the overall picture. So uh, if you are somebody who does know a lot about Roman history, you probably won't hear anything you didn't already know. But uh, I wanted to give just an overview of the rise of Rome, the legendary stories of Rome's uh, foundation and early days, and then it, the story of its its going from being a regional power to a great power with uh, the struggles against uh, Carthage. Now, before I begin properly, you may be wondering, well, what does this have to do with the usual themes of Prussian socialism and uh, German history and, and European history? Well. Roman history is very much something that later Europeans have looked back to as, as something uh, worthy of emulation. And particularly the founding fathers in the United States would have known this history, did know this history very well. And also the great leaders of uh, Germany, I mean, really all Europeans, but especially leaders Frederick the Great, Hitler, um, would have known this history very well. And you will see in the stories of the Punic Wars, it is hard not to notice parallels with the world wars. In fact, I'll talk a little bit about this at the end, but right before the end of World War II on uh, April 1st, 1945, uh, Dr. Goebbels wrote a editorial in uh, publication Das Reich called uh, History, History the Teacher, I think it was called, and it was a specific comparison between Germany's situation in those last desperate months and that of Rome in the Second Punic War. So to start off, uh, Roman history in general, the early Roman history. Early Roman history is very little known. Uh, it is highly legendary. The accounts that we have are mostly taken from later authors like uh, Livy, who wrote uh, Ab Urbo Condite, uh, from the foundation of the city. And we don't really have, I mean, it, it's thought or it's said by the classical historians that the records of Roman history prior to uh, 390 BC were lost when the Gauls conquered Rome in that year. But nevertheless, the legendary history of Rome or semi-legendary history of Rome was very important and was considered to be uh, a model for later Romans and a lot of uh, the great heroes of the early era of Roman history, the legendary heroes or semi-legendary heroes were admired by later Romans and they, they modeled themselves on them. Now that's not to say that the Romans didn't have a fairly critical view of this early history. Uh, Cicero himself is is said to have, in writing in uh, 
in the first century BC is is said to have commented that he didn't believe that a lot of early Roman history was was known very critically. But nevertheless, it's still important and uh, is still something that you know it's uh, modern historians have tried to separate fact from fiction but i'm just going to give you basically the story as it's uh the traditional story so rome was founded in uh on the tiber river in italy in seven in the date is 753 bc it was founded by two brothers romulus and remus romulus was uh the well they were twin brothers and the two of them came to conflict over who would be the king of the city. And there's two different stories of this given in the classical histo- histories. One is that uh, Romulus killed Remus when he jumped over the wall that Romulus was building and said, thus anyone will fall who tries to jump over uh, these walls or, or climb over these walls. The other story is that Romulus and Remus agreed to a challenge to try to figure out who... Um, who should rule the city based on what the gods wanted. Um, so they each went on to a separate hill. Uh, Remus w- went on to the Aventine Hill, and Romulus went on to, I think it was the Capitoline Hill, and they looked for a sign. Now, the Romans were very superstitious uh, throughout their history, uh, sort of a, an Italian habit, you might say, and they looked for birds. Uh, Romans in their uh, religion were very much concerned with augury that is predicting the future based on the habits of birds the flights of birds uh, whether birds will eat or not and Romulus saw 12 uh, hawks or ravens Remus saw six and so Romulus said well I I should be the king because I saw more and then they fought and Romulus killed his brother so either way both stories Romulus kills Remus and then founds the city the city it starts to develop and it's really only inhabited by men at first and so the romans decide to go and kidnap the uh the daughters of a nearby town these sabines and so there's the story of the rape of the sabine women the romans went and kidnapped the daughters of the Sabines and brought them back to Rome and the the Sabines came and tried to take their daughters and uh, sisters back and they had a battle with the Romans and eventually the the Romans uh, were able to keep the the daughters because allegedly the daughters came to the defense of their new Roman husbands. Romulus established the kingdom, uh, the Roman kingdom, which uh, had seven kings in it from his time until 509, 510, 509 BC, when there was a revolution and the uh, sort of arist- the new Roman aristocracy took over. Now, among the seven kings of Rome, the remarkable ones other than Romulus are his successor Numa Pompilius, who, uh, according to classical historians, was the founder of a lot of the the uh, habits of Roman religion and a lot of the the priesthoods, including well, Romulus was the first to hold the chief priesthood that is Pontifex Maximus. You'll notice that that's the title held to this very day by the Pope. Uh, Pontifex means the the bridge maker or the bridge builder. So the great bridge builder is the chief of the Roman religion, um, and. 
the other king worth mentioning is the sixth king, Servius uh, Tullius, who built the wall, the first walls of Rome. The final king uh, was called uh, Tar- Tarquin the Proud, Tar- uh, Tarquinus Superbus. And the last three kings, including Tullius and Tarquin, were both Etruscans. Now, the Etruscans were a people who lived north of Rome and sort of what the area what's now called Tuscany. And what's strange about the Etruscans is that they were a, they spoke a non-Indo-European language. The ancient authors said that the Etruscans had come to Italy from Anatolia, that is today's Turkey, which would explain their strange language, which even today has only partially been deciphered. Uh, To give you an idea of how little scholars know of this language, they know they have some bits of grammar and a lot of words, but until uh, a decade or so ago, it was still debated which was the Etruscan word for six and which was the word for four. But the Etruscans were uh, sort of the dominant people in uh, in Italy at the time. Uh, and then, well, there are the Etruscans in, in Tuscany and then the Greeks, uh, Greek colonies in the south of Magna Graecia. So that would have been uh, Greek colonists who had been settling the area since the 8th and 7th centuries BC in uh, what's now Calabria and Sicily and Apulia, and even as far north as, as like Naples at Pestum. But the Etruscans, and neither the Etruscans nor the Greeks were a united people. They were a, a, a bunch of different city-states, but nevertheless, Etruria or the Etruscans were able to dominate Rome, and with its last uh, three kings, the last king, Tarquin the Proud, was called the Proud or the Arrogant, because he, well, th- that should give you an idea of why he fell, because he was arrogant. He raped the daughter of a Roman uh, patrician, a, a rich Roman, a. Uh, by the name of uh, Lucretia, and she then went on to kill herself because of the dishonor. This sparked a revolution, and the Romans are supposedly throughout the Etruscans, and then the Etruscans came back under their general, uh, Alars Porcena, to try to retake Rome. Now, this is where we get into the, some of the stories of some of these famous early Roman heroes, and I'll mention, mention a couple of them. Two of the famous Roman heroes from this revolution against the Etruscans were uh, Horatius Cocles and Mucius Scaevola. So Horatius was a soldier. Well, they were both soldiers, of course. Everyone was a soldier. And Lars Porcena, the Etruscan commander, defeated the Romans on the right bank of the Tiber and drove them back across a, a bridge into the city. And the Etruscan army was going to pursue the Romans across that bridge, but Horatius is said to have stood at the bridge and held off the enti- entire Etruscan army by himself, which I suppose is possible if it's a very narrow bridge, you know, one, one man could uh, <laughs> prevent the passage of, of many hundreds of others, while the rest of the Romans cut down the bridge and destroyed it behind him. And then he jumped into the river and swam, uh, sw- jumped into the, into the Tiber and swam back to safety. The other great hero, um, Mucius Scaevola, was sent into the Etruscan camp, into the camp of Lars Porcena, to assassinate Porcena. He failed because he saw the Etruscans in assembly and mistook a double for 
the Etruscan commander, murdered the double, and then was arrested and dragged before the true Lars Porsena. Porsena then uh, interrogated him, and Mucius Scaevola said, you know, by way of intimidating the Etruscans, well, he said nothing and just stuck his hand into a fire and let his hand get roasted and slowly burn off. The Etruscans, of course, were terrified at this, and he turned to them and said, well, you've seen what I've just done. There are 300 men back in Rome who would do just the same thing. Supposedly, this was enough to scare off the Etruscans, and they left the Romans alone. So the Roman government, uh, the Romans decided to reestablish their government, not as a kingdom, but instead as a republic. The main fellow behind this was a uh, Lucius Junius Brutus, uh, a ancestor of the later Brutus who killed uh, Julius Caesar. This Brutus and the other patricians decided that they would establish a government on a sort of a principle where no one would have supreme power. And this is a theme throughout Roman Republican history up to the establishment of the empire and even actually beyond the establishment of the empire where the Romans were afraid of having any one man be the king. So one of the ways to do this was collega, that is collegiality. For every office, there was another man of equal power, even at the very highest level. And the highest level in the Republican government was the consul. There were two consuls elected every year. And the Romans took this so far that the consuls rotated each month as to which one had uh, seniority. Below the consuls, there were praetors. Uh, praetors uh, originally had a, a function of being judges, and that was their, their main function, and then later it ex extended to some other things. Uh, the other ones worth mentioning, uh, the most ancient offices were things like uh, quaestor. Uh, the quaestors were uh, sort of uh, managers. They had the power to... They usually had the power to... They were like... Uh, your logistics and and um, administrative assistance to higher officials like consuls or, or governors or anything like that. The other one was the idol. Idols. Uh, it was an office where you were charged with maintaining uh, public buildings and and maintaining temples. So you can see these very important things. Now. I mean, what I'm describing here is sort of the classic model of the Republican government. This evolved greatly over time. There were periods in Roman history where they didn't elect consuls. Uh, they, a couple times throughout the early Republic, they had uh, a board of 10 who, who ruled the government. Um, there were variations in who was allowed to be elected consul or, or praetor. Early on, those offices were reserved to the aristocrats, that is the patricians. And uh, the lower orders, that is the plebeians, were not allowed to get into those offices. But basically, over the course of the Republic's history of about 500 years, you had a fairly stable government ruled by uh, the sort of principle that no one man could be allowed to obtain too much power. Now, how were elections conducted and how was the government run generally? So, first of all, the main 
governing body, the most important body, at least in the, the historical period of, of the Roman Republic from the 300 BC onward, was the Senate. And the Senate was uh, a body of a few hundred men by the late Republic, it was about 300 men. Earlier times probably was a little bit smaller. And only patricians were allowed to be in the Senate. The Senate was a body that sat, you know, you, if you were a senator, you had uh, that power for life, uh, unless you were removed from office for some uh, scandal. And then the other body, or it's actually a, a very complicated system, but uh, the other body worth mentioning is the, um, the Centuriate Assembly. And so this was the, um, basically the, the government or the in a way comparable to the American system of a lower body of Congress versus the Senate, the Centuriate Assembly was uh, groups of men ordered according to class who could cast votes in blocks for electing higher officials and for voting on legislation. And their their moves had to be also approved by the Senate. So speaking about elections, the way the Romans did elections was very class-based. You didn't cast a single vote. You cast a vote as a member of your class. And these are these classes or groups were uh, called centuries. And what should be clear, each class, I think there it was, it was seven different classes going from the highest, the patricians, and then down through the different orders of plebeians down to the very lowest class who were called the proletarians, the proletari. And... The higher you were, the higher the class, the more centuries there were. And obviously, there were fewer men in the higher classes, so each century was just smaller. And then the proletarians were all just grouped into one giant century. Each century cast one vote. So even though there were fewer patricians, there were more centuries of patricians, and hence more votes could be cast by the patricians. So it was very much a, an aristocratic, uh, what Aristotle would have called a mixed government, and you can see how uh, the early American Republic also em emulated this and wanted this to sort of be their, their model, where the uh, higher people with more property had a, a, a bigger voice in government. Throughout the early era of the Roman Republic, the 400s and 300s BC, there was a, a sort of a power struggle going on between the patricians and the plebs. This, as the government started off with very high patrician patrol, control, but the plebs over the centuries were able to wrest some power from the patricians. They did this by a number of means. One thing that they did several times throughout the early era of the Republic was called secessio plebis. Uh, Secessio sounds like secession, breaking away. Uh, so break away of the people. And this is sort of just like a, 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 not a revolt, but a strike. The plebs would just get together and literally just leave the city. And it's like, all right, patricians, you, uh, you don't think you need us or you don't think you need to take, uh, take our concerns seriously in the government? Well, we're just going to leave and then see, see how you like it. Through uh, acts of, of this sort of general strike, the plebs were able to wrest some powers. So the first was the inst uh, institution of the office of tribune. Tribune was an office that only could go to a plebeian. Uh, I think originally there were two tribunes, but in uh, later centuries, there would be more tribunes, I think as high as, as eight or 16, maybe. And 
the tribunes had certain special powers. One thing was that a tribune was sacrosanct. So that meant that you were not allowed to touch a tribune. If he was in office, he could not be touched. He could not be beaten. He could not be struck. Uh, doing so, I mean, of course, you couldn't strike a, council, a consul either, but there was this almost, there was like a religious injunction against doing it. And the punishments were very stark for uh, harming a tribune. Tribunes had one power. They did not, uh, at least early on, their power, their most important power was the power of veto. Veto is the Latin verb word for I forbid. And if one tribune said veto, it meant that whatever legislation was proposed simply could not go through. In later centuries, the plebeians also wrested from the patricians a concession that one consul elected every year had to be a plebeian. Now, this didn't usually happen, but uh, there were uh, there were a lot of uh, plebeians who were able to be elected to become consuls, even if that uh, law wasn't strictly followed. Now, the other office worth mentioning is that of Kensor. And this office, uh, the Kensor was responsible for conducting censuses. This is where we get the word census from Kensor. And he also had the power, there were a number of Kensors, Kensores, uh, he had the power to remove men from the Senate and introduce new men into the Senate. Now, he couldn't remove them. He had to remove them for cause, but uh, it was considered an extremely important office. And in certain ways, Kensor was even more important than consul, uh, even though you know, the consuls were the supreme executives, but the Kensores had uh, this, this certain more prestige to it. Often men, after they had served as consuls, would then serve as Kensor. And the uh, other notable thing about the uh, office of Kensor is that it was unusual and that it could be held, or it was held for 18 months rather than the usual 12. So now to further set the stage. So Rome in 500 BC, it is immediately after the expulsion of the uh, kings and, and the pushing out of the, the Etruscans, it was a small state. I mean, really just the town of Rome itself and the surrounding areas. Uh, the Romans were part of a, a slightly bigger group of people called the Latins. Uh, that's a linguistic distinction. Uh, Latins are people who spoke Latin. Uh, Latin is a Indo-European language related to Celtic and Germanic and Greek and Slavonic and Sanskrit and Persian, and uh, also the other ancient languages of Italy, such as Oscan. But Rome didn't rule over the Latins, at least not initially. Over the first about century of uh, Roman history, or Ro Roman Republican history from uh, 509-508 to, to the Gallic invasion of 390, Rome was really just a regional power. It slowly expanded. It was able to bring some of the Latin, uh, other Latin tribes into its orbit. And it started to come into conflict with some of its other Italian neighbors, such as the Samonites, who were another big uh, collection of tribes in the uh, Apennine Mountains and cent uh, sort of central southern Italy, Campania, down to uh, Apulia, that is the, the heel of Italy. And as I already mentioned, you had the Etruscans in Tuscany, that's the area just north of Rome, and then in the very south, you had the Greeks. 
So Roman history was, you know, set in its real career only with the Gallic invasion. Now, why is this? So in the early fourth century, the Gauls from sort of southern France migrated into the Po Valley. The Po Valley is uh, just in, in northern Italy and started to put a lot of pressure on the Etruscans. Then the Gauls were able to like beat the Etruscans and move all the way down to Rome. And they defeated a big Roman army at the Battle of Alia and then succeeded in, in taking over Rome itself. Now, why was this so important? This was the first time that Rome came into conflict with a real uh, external enemy. And I mean, more more alien than just the Etruscans. This is sort of going off of uh, the explanation of a uh, historian, I think he's still alive, by the name of Peter Turchin, uh, who you've maybe heard me mention before in other podcasts. Turchin puts forth the hypothesis that Rome really went from being a regional power to a or a, a tiny, not even regional power, a uh, Italian uh, mediocre power to the dominant force in Italy and then in the Western Mediterranean because of its conflict with the Gauls. So Battle of Alia was a total humiliation for the Roman army. Uh, the Roman army at this time fought in a similar style to the Greeks and the, the hoplite sort of style of fighting. Uh, each soldier would have carried a giant round shield in Greek called the hoplon and fought with a spear and a sword and uh, bronze armor. Now, one of the, one of the reasons that for Rome's defeat uh, by the Gauls was that their armor was made out of bronze and the Gauls had these big, long iron swords. And if you swing a big uh, iron sword and crash it down on a bronze helmet, you'll usually split the helmet and split the skull. So after this uh, fight with the Gauls, the Romans started manufacturing their helmets, at least out of iron, which is much harder to work uh, than bronze. But the Gauls came into Rome and uh, their leader, uh, Brennus, is he was able to basically surround or come into the city and only a small Roman garrison held out on the Capitoline Hill. And the Gauls are, are said to have just you know, slaughtered a lot of the old Roman senators and, and the Romans uh, fled out into other towns. This is where Brennus famously uh, got the Romans to pay a huge indemnity to get the Gauls to leave Rome. And when they brought out the scales to weigh how much gold the Romans were going to give over to the Gauls, Brennus used weights uh, that were over heavy so that the Romans would have to pay more gold than the agreed upon amount. The Romans complained about this, and Brennus is supposed to have thrown his, his sword on the scale and said, Vi victus, woe to the defeated. So the Romans did manage to, you know, the, the Gauls eventually left, but it shook Rome to the core and they organized themselves and developed themselves in order to oppose this uh, Gallic menace. Over the course of the 300s BC, Rome was able to secure some more and more of Italy by fighting against the Samnites, those other Italic peoples in central and southern Italy, and eventually bring many of them under its control through the three Samnite wars. The one politician, uh, probably the most worth mentioning politician of this time was Appius Claudius, who 
was famous for two things. One, he built a road from Rome down to very southern uh, Italy to Brindisium in Apulia. It's called the Via Appia, the Appian Way. And he's also the politician responsible for building the first aqueduct to bring fresh water from the hills into Rome. Now, Rome was able to expand its power and its uh, its population base and its recruitment pool by colonization. So the way they did this was they sent out Roman citizens to found colonies throughout Italy, throughout the former, still heavily Samanite areas, and they established, uh, established towns called Colonia, which were filled with Roman citizens. And this way, if there was ever a revolt or some sort of disorder or an invasion in any part of the areas that they now had under their control, they could call on a reliable group of Roman citizens, of Latin-speaking Roman citizens, to uh, hold on to their power in any part of of the peninsula, at least uh, the area, the areas under their control, which by the 300s BC would have been the uh, you know Latium, the center of uh, the part, the area around Rome, and then uh, central and, and southern Italy. This brought them into conflict, not only with the Gauls to their north, but the Greeks to their south. So, the Greek city states in southern Italy were mainly founded as colonies by uh, Doric Greeks, that is, Greeks who were linguistically and eth ethnically related to the Greeks who founded Sparta and who inhabited Crete and Rhodes and some other parts of the Peloponnesus. And this conflict, or uh, brewing conflict, came to a head over the city of Tarentum in southern Italy. Tarentum didn't want to be absorbed into the burgeoning Roman state, and so it appealed to a Greek king on the other side of the uh, Adriatic Sea, that is Pyrrhus of Epirus. Epirus is the part of Greece, uh, northern Greece, and what's and also what's now Albania. Uh, Pyrrhus was one of these Greek uh, potentates, uh, one of the Hellenistic sort of uh, successors to the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander, after his death in 323 BC, had his empire had split up among his generals, and the most powerful ones and most relevant to Rome would have been um, the kings of Macedon in, in Greece, and then later on the Seleucid kingdom in uh, the Orient and the Ptolemies in uh, Egypt. But Pyrrhus or Pyrrhus was a fairly strong ruler, and he decided to get involved in Italian politics and to help out the Greeks of Magna Graecia. So he came over to Italy and fought a few wars with the Romans. Uh, he, he is notorious for winning battles uh, in a lopsided way. That is, he lost more men than he could afford to win. This is where we get the expression of Pyrrhic victory. And it was the first time he was able to win some of these battles because it was the first time the Romans ever encountered uh, elephants in battle. This was a, a habit of the Hellenistic rulers, uh, sort of a fashion in, in military uh, technology of the three and, and 200s BC was the use of elephants. And we'll see that a lot more with the wars against Carthage. But the Romans were eventually triumphant and got control of southern Italy, but not Sicily. 
So this is where we come into the conflict between the Romans and the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians were a Semitic people, a Semitic-speaking people, who controlled uh, what's now Tunisia from the city of Carthage. Carthage had been founded at about the same time as Rome in the 8th century BC, according to legend, and had been founded, it was a uh, colony of the Phoenician city of Tyre. Um, Tyre is in Lebanon, and you may also know of Tyre because it was conquered by Alexander the Great by um, Tyre was located on an island and Alexander had to build a land bridge to get his siege engines up to the city and and conquer it. But Carthage uh, outstripped Tyre in importance by, certainly by the third century BC, it was uh, much more powerful and it it had started establishing colonies of its own around the Western Mediterranean, uh, including in Spain and most importantly for the Romans in Sicily. So, Rome and Carthage came into conflict over control of Sicily. This led to the first of their wars from uh, 264 to 41, 241 BC. It's called the First Punic Wars. Punic is from the Latin word punicus, which uh, is their way of saying Phoenician, and it's how they refer to the Carthaginians. The Carthaginians were also notable as it's sort of a when you look at Rome and Carthage, it's sort of looking at uh, like looking at Britain and Germany in the 20th century, or Britain and France in the 18th and 19th centuries, or Athens and Sparta in the 5th century BC. Carthage was much more of a mercantile trading power. It had a very good uh, navy, and Rome was uh, was a land power. They had no navy prior to the First Punic War. So, in the first stages of the war, Rome was able to get control of most of Sicily, but they weren't able to take control of a lot of the outlying towns or the seaside towns because the Carthaginians could simply reinforce with their navy. Uh, This state of affairs lasted for most of the war, well, for the first decade of the war, uh, and the Romans tried in 256 BC to invade North Africa and to just put an end to the war by capturing Carthage. Uh, this invasion turned out to be a disaster. It was led by the consul Regulus, and Regulus himself was captured and then ordered by the Carthaginians to go back to Rome and sue for peace or present Carthage's uh, peace proposal. Regulus did this. He went to Rome, uh, and he, instead of saying what the Carthaginians wanted him to say, he told he encouraged the Senate to fight to the bloody end. The story of Regulus, Regulus is sort of a, another one of these early Roman heroes who was admired throughout Roman history and thought of as uh, a great example of, of toughness and stalwartness and devotion to duty. He had promised the Carthaginians that he would return to Carthage after fulfilling his mission. Now, he, of course, stabbed them in the back in a way by going to before the Senate and not presenting what they'd wanted to present, but he wanted to show that he wasn't a coward, and so he went back to Carthage despite all of the other Romans telling him that he ought to just, you know, stay in Rome and forget about the whole affair. Uh, so he went back to Carthage and was tortured to death. Now, the Romans were able to get uh, an advantage in the Second Punic War, or the, sorry, the First Punic War, by finally taking to the sea by building a navy. They allegedly found a, a beached Carthaginian ship and then built a, uh, a fleet of 150-some ships 
modeled exactly on this Carthaginian uh, quinquireme that they had, had found on the shore. And the Romans knew that, you know, you can't just, just building a bunch of ships isn't enough to win a Navy war. You've got to also have the men and the training and the organization to win. And they didn't really have a hope of doing that against uh, a nation of seafarers such as the Carthaginians. So the way that they gained an advantage was they devised a engine of war, which they called the corvos, a crow. And what this was, was a, a sort of bridge like a, a, a drawbridge in a way, like a little foot drawbridge that was attached to the boat in, a, in, a up, in, in an upright position with a, a long cable attached to it, and then a big spike on one end. So what you, could, what you could do with the Corvos is in battle, if you came up close to an enemy ship, maybe the enemy ship rammed your ship and your ship was sinking, or maybe you could pull alongside an enemy ship, is they could swing the Corvos around, drop it, and the big spike would pin the Roman ship to the Carthaginian ship, and then Roman soldiers could charge across the bridge and fight hand-to-hand and either kill everybody or capture the Carthaginian ship. Now, this gave the Romans uh, the ability to win battles at sea, and they won a number of battles at sea against the Carthaginians around uh, Sicily. The problem was that this Corvus made the ship unwieldy and unbalanced. So there were at least two instances where the Romans, uh, the Roman fleet was caught in a storm and they lost 100, 200 ships in each time. Now, 100 or 200 ships, you know, how many, you know, what does that mean? If you figure that each ship had something like a couple hundred rowers on board and a few dozen Marines, losing 100 or 200 ships is a big number. Now, the, the estimates for how many sailors and soldiers the Romans were losing runs in the tens of thousands as high as a hundred thousand in some of these incidents and that I don't really think that is a matter of ancient authors exaggerating we know basically how many troops the Romans would have had in in any of their military formations I mean you can deduct some for absenteeism or or sick or uh, under undermanned units but in the Second Punic War especially, as we'll see later, the Romans were losing tens of thousands of men in, a, in a, a bunch of battles. So, you know, the population of Italy was big enough that it could have supported uh, these kinds of losses. Nevertheless, it's an incredible testament to the fortitude and the moral strength of the Roman state at this time that they were able to take such huge losses and continue fighting. Toward the end of the war and uh, the late uh, 240s, Rome, both sides were basically exhausted. Rome managed to raise one more navy by forcibly getting all of the people, but especially the patricians, to contribute personal gold and silver, their you know rings and personal jewelry, everything, to equip and outfit one more navy. And with this navy, they were able to beat the Carthaginians, invade North Africa, and force the Carthaginians to sue for peace. The peace treaty uh, was, you know, very similar in a way to the Treaty of Versailles. The Romans demanded a huge indemnity, uh, a thousand talents of gold. Uh, A Roman talent is 70 pounds, so 70,000 pounds of gold as the first payment, and then over the years uh, beyond that, another 2,200 talents of gold. They also uh, forced the Carthaginians to evacuate Sicily. So Rome 
after the First Punic War secured control of Sicily. Now, the Carthaginians, because they had to pay this huge uh, this huge penalty to the Romans, were not able to pay their army, uh, which was still very large at the end of the war. And much of the army consisted of mercenaries and not of Carthaginian citizens. Uh, the Carthaginians, all of their armies, even into the Second Punic War, were heavily manned by Celts and North African, Numidians, Libyans, uh, even Greeks and Spaniards. And so you had this hodgepodge army uh, who were really just there for the money. And now that Carthage couldn't pay them after the war, they revolted. This was uh, this led to the uh, so-called mercenary war, where uh, one of Hannibal, uh, one of Carthage's top generals, or it's really its top general, it's it's Generalissimo, it's it's uh, Hindenburg, uh, Hamilcar Barca, was able to defeat them, but only after a lot of effort and more losses by the Carthaginians. While the Carthaginians were fighting their own mercenaries in the aftermath of the First Punic War, uh, Rome managed to seize Sardinia from them. So this sets the stage for the Second Punic War. And this war was in a way, I mean, a, a total Mediterranean war. It was not just Rome and Carthage who were involved in it, but many of the peoples, the Spaniards and the Celts were involved as mercenaries on, on the side of Carthage and the other states of the Mediterranean uh, particularly Macedon and uh, the city-state of Syracuse got heavily involved in the war as well. So Hamilcar Barca, Generalissimo of the First War and sort of hero of Carthage, after Carthage's defeat and after he'd finally gotten control of things after the Mercenary War, he set up operations in Spain. Spain was important because it was the one area where Carthage could expand, and it was also important because at this time, Spain had uh, was known for its silver deposits, so a lot of money could be made by mining silver in Spain. Hamilcar uh, had three sons, Hasdrubal, Mago, and Hannibal. The most famous one is, of course, Hannibal. The story of Hannibal's youth is that his father, Hamilcar, at, when he was nine or ten years old, brought him into uh, into a temple and forced him to swear eternal hostility against the Romans because Hamilcar and the Carthaginians had been so humiliated in the first war and Hamilcar was not going to take it and he knew that he might not live to see revenge, but he wanted his son Hannibal to get that revenge for him. And boy, did Hannibal follow through on that oath. Over the decades of the 230s and 220s BC, uh, Hannibal and his brothers built up Carthaginian power in Spain, and uh, Hamilcar died in the meantime. Hannibal was able to build a big army from the Spanish tribes, and th he then, uh, in around 220 to 19 BC, decided he was going to attack Rome. Now, looking at the overall strategic picture of the Western Mediterranean at the time, Carthage no longer had naval power like it did in the First Punic War and before. Rome was the dominant naval power in the Western Mediterranean. So Hannibal found himself in sort of the 
opposite position from the Carthaginians of the First War, where he would need to uh, dominate on land. And he came up with an ingenious strategic scheme to put the Romans on the defensive. He decided that he would invade Italy by marching north through Hispania, through southern Gaul, across the Rhone River, through the Alps, and then down into Italy. This would mean that he wouldn't have to rely on naval power, on on bringing his his, uh, troops in by ship or bringing supplies in by ship. He would simply bring a army of several tens of thousands into uh, the Roman heartland and then pillage and live off the land and try to break away Rome's allies. That is the states, the the Etruscan and Samanite states and, and Greek states that had been subjugated by Rome in the previous century or two. So this is exactly what he did. He marched his army of about 50,000 north through uh, Gaulish territory, through the Gallic tribes, and he recruited some more of them onto his side, and then had a harrowing crossing of the Alps, where he lost about half of his total force, although he did manage to bring some of his force, including elephants, into Italy. The Romans knew that he was doing this. They tried to stop him. They sent a consul, Publius Cornelius Scipio, to intercept Hannibal in southern uh, France, what's now southern France. Uh, Scipio was not able to meet him and had to get on uh, boats and sail back to Italy. Now, I should say that this is not Publius Cornelius Scipio who would go on to defeat Hannibal. This is his father, the first, we'll call him Publius uh, Cornelius Scipio Sr. So Scipio Sr., the elder, managed to get back to Italy and intercept Hannibal at uh, a battle uh, called Tychinus, and Hannibal destroyed him. At this battle, the one, uh, the most notable aspect of it is that Scipio's son, Scipio uh, Publius Cornelius Scipio Junior, the younger, was 16 years old and a military tribune. That is a, a staff officer, a, you know, an ensign. I don't know. It's it's hard to kind of make a comparison with a modern military, but a junior officer. The son, uh, Scipio Junior, rode in at the head of some cavalry and managed to, to save his father uh, when his father was cut off by the Carthaginians and bring him out of the battle. So that was, was his first time in, in combat and he proved himself a, a real hero. But so much, you know, as much as that was a, an act of personal heroism and, and remarkable, the Romans were still defeated. Tychinus was a fairly minor battle. Over the next three years, 218, 17, and 16 BC, Hannibal would deal the Romans three major, major defeats in which they lost tens of thousands of men. So the first of these was um, the Battle of uh, Lake Trebia. The Romans sent a a force north to find Hannibal, and Hannibal was a real, he was sort of the Napoleon of the ancient world. He was a real military genius. He was brilliant at leading his motley force of different uh, peoples and, and mercenary troops, all speaking different languages. And he was able to wield them 
in foreign territory against the Romans and, and win battles, often by concealing forces in uh, using terrain very well, concealing forces in the woods or in, in, a, in a, a, a low-lying area where they wouldn't be seen and hit the Romans in the flank. It's exactly what he did at Lake Trebia. He routed the Romans, killed the estimates are about 20,000 of them. And uh, the Roman government was a little bit shaken by that. But no big deal because the Romans had suffered big defeats before, and you're going to see this throughout the Second Punic War, and this is sort of the story of the rise of Rome in general, is that the Romans were amazing at taking L's, taking big losses, and coming back and staying in the fight. So uh, to to compare this to Clausewitz, uh, the Romans understood the principle that you know, boldness usually carries the day, and the Romans were big on boldness. They always, always attacked, always went for another battle, always tried to win in the open. The only problem was that against Hannibal, they weren't just facing boldness, they were facing cautious foresight. And as Clausewitz says, cautious foresight usually is just what people say when they're afraid to fight. But in Hannibal's case, he wasn't afraid to fight. He was prepared to be very bold, and he was able to use the Romans' boldness against them. The next big defeat, 217, uh, for the Romans was at Lake Trezimene. This is north of Rome in, in Tuscany, what's now Tuscany. Uh, I think it's fairly close to Siena. And the Roman army marched out along the north of the, the north bank of the lake with their be their left side was facing the hills, their right side was facing the lake. There was a series of hills going along the north side of the lake. Of course, that's where Hannibal concealed his troops in a giant ambush. He then charged down with all of his men, got into a, a huge battle with the Romans. Uh, the Romans didn't see it coming, and they had their backs to the lake, and Hannibal was able to basically beat them piecemeal and drive them into the lake and cut up the whole army. Uh, here, again, about uh, 30,000 killed, and including the consul Flaminius. So now Rome knew that they, this was like very serious. This was That was a huge loss. So they did something with their government that they could do in emergencies, and they appointed a dictator. Now, as I've said, the Romans were always uh, hesitant to give one man total power, but they did have this mechanism in their constitution where one man can be given power for a, uh, a total power for a limited amount of time, usually six months or a year uh, tops, to uh, resolve the crisis. The Romans appointed uh, Quintus Fabius Maximus as dictator, and they selected Unfortunately, they selected as his second in command, his, his master of the horse, a political enemy of his, which was probably a bad idea, given that it, you want unity of command, but it worked out okay. Fabius decided that the best way to deal with Hannibal was to avoid battle with him, to try to cut off his supplies, uh, ambush out, uh, units of his that were isolated, and basically just try to wear him down. This is, uh, you know, comparable. Think of uh, Napoleon in 1813 fighting in Germany when the uh, Allied armies came up with the uh, Trackenberg plan, which was to fight anyone, fight any French forces that weren't Napoleon, and if Napoleon was there, run away. Well, that's exactly what Fabius tried to do. This was a very unpopular strategy with the Romans. The Romans were always hot for a fight, and the Romans 
particularly Fabius's political enemies called him Cunctator, uh, the delayer, because he was reluctant to get into a fight. So after six months of the Fabian strategy, trying to avoid battle with Hannibal, the Romans said, no, we're not doing that. We, we, we can still beat these guys. We have more men. We have a better, uh, a better military system. We, those first two, first three defeats, Tychinus, Trebia, Tresimene, that doesn't matter. We're going to, we're going to do it this time. So they raised an absolutely huge army, uh, two consular armies. So this is uh, well, no, four consular armies. A consular army consists of two legions. A legion is about 5,000 men, plus a complement of 10 cohorts of allied, that is non-Roman citizen, Italian troops. So uh, that's something like 80,000 men. Deduct a little bit for uh, absenteeism and, and understrength units, but a very large army. This was put under control of two consuls and two proconsuls. The Romans had a system for, uh, if someone was given consular power without actually being a consul, they'd call them a proconsul. Uh, the two consuls were uh, Emilius Paulus and uh, Terentius Vero. Now, again, the Romans being wary of giving one man too much power now that the, no, nobody's a dictator and we have two consuls and two proconsuls had power uh, the absolute control of the army supreme command shifted every day between these four different men and as you can imagine that would cause problems now the two proconsuls and paulus all were hesitant and did not want to fight hannibal or they they wanted to fight him but they wanted to fight him on their terms. The two armies were sort of concentrated in southern Italy, uh, in the area of, it's at, at Canai, which is down in the south, sort of near Apulia. I'm not sure if it's in Apulia, but it's in the, the southern part of Italy, right on the Adriatic coast, a little bit inland. And Vero, looking at the whole uh, strategic situation said, oh, well, look, I've got 80,000 men. Hannibal's got a third of that, maybe a, uh, half that at best. I'm just going to put the entire army out and fight them. So this was August of 216 BC. Vero marched out the whole army in a giant block. And uh, the way the Romans fought at this time was different from the way that the Greeks fought, and uh, it was a very clever way of fighting. It was uh, the Romans' greatest strength was their ability to maneuver and their ability to put troops into a fight and then extract them and put in fresh troops. The way they did this was the army was split into four basic classes of infantry. The lightest troops were called velites, and these were uh, basically just men armed with javelins who would be used in a skirmishing role. The next class were hostades, who uh, were slightly more heavily armored. They had a big shield, a helmet, a sword, spears, perhaps body armor. Next heaviest class were uh, principes. They had probably more body armor. And then the, the final type of troop was a more conservative type, more like a Greek hoplite in a way, called triarii, and they had a long uh, wooden spear, and they would fight in more defensive role in sort of the more traditional phalanx style of fighting. 
so Vero put all of his troops on the field in, in big, a big block formation uh, and figured, well, we'll just crush them in the middle. We'll crush their entire center and then, uh, you know, f- wrap up the problem afterward. Now, the Romans' great weakness throughout the Second Punic War, but particular, particularly at the Battle of Cannae, was that they were weak in cavalry. Uh, Hannibal was always strong in cavalry. Hannibal, knowing or assuming correctly that the Romans would try to use mass against him and in using mass on sacrificing their maneuverability, he put his troops in a wedge formation, a sort of uh, semicircular wedge formation so that it, it appeared that the most troops were in the center. If you're looking, you know, from the Roman lines, you'd be seeing, well, the, the center is closer to us and, and it looks like he's got more men there. Maybe he's concealing more behind the middle. So that's his strong point. But the fact was that he had put his weaker troops, his Celts, his less disciplined troops, Celts, of course, in the middle, and he'd put his Spanish uh, and the, and uh, African Libyan infantry on the flanks and then his cavalry on the flanks beyond that. So really what Hannibal's plan was to do was to have the Romans push into the middle and then try to surround them. And so in this way, he would be able to have the maximum number of his troops engaged at any one time while nullifying all of the Roman troops in the middle of their formation and make make it such that they couldn't be extracted and brought out to attack on the flanks or attack somewhere else. And it worked brilliantly. The Romans attacked, they pushed in the middle, they seemed to be they seemed to be winning. Uh, meanwhile, the cavalry on the left and right flank engaged and the Romans were beaten and fled. The Carthaginian cavalry pursued a little bit. This is where uh, the other, the consul Paulus was killed, and the Carthaginian cavalry had the discipline and the order to, once they had chased the Romans off the field, to turn around and then hit the Romans in the rear. So because of the, the bow-flexing uh, sort of aspect of Hannibal's infantry, he'd managed to drag the Romans into the middle, surround them on in the front and on the sides, and... You, you can imagine the total confusion of such a huge uh, battle. There wasn't, you know, anybody or to really any commander or any way to signal to withdraw some of those useless troops in the middle of the Roman formation who weren't engaging the Carthaginians and didn't have any, you know, they couldn't really push through in any direction. And then they get hit in the rear. So in uh, in the battle, the Romans lost pretty much their, their entire army. Uh, the estimates are traditionally given at 70,000 killed uh that's maybe we uh, lower estimates give like 50,000 but basically the romans lost as many men as the u.s lost in the vietnam war in one day a few escaped uh scipio uh, publius cornelius scipio uh the younger was in this battle as a as a as a young man as a now he would have been 18 or, or 19 he led a small force out was able to escape and break out of the the encirclement and uh also varro the mastermind of this catastrophe escaped as well now this is something strange about the romans varro reported back to rome after this disaster and the people welcomed him believe it or not because he had not deserted the state this is sort of interesting. You would think, you know, if, the, if it had been the Carthaginians, the Carthaginians would have crucified him. The Carthaginians were uh, their 
main method of dealing with failed commanders was to simply execute them. Uh, you That is good in a way because it encourages success, but on the other hand, it discourages boldness. The Romans were so committed to boldness that even a failed commander like Vero, who managed to lose 70,000 men in a single day, was welcomed back at Rome uh, for his not deserting the state. I mean, I guess people would have thought that he would have fled uh, <laughs> after such an embarrassment. So Cannae was like was the probably the biggest military disaster in Roman history. I mean, there's maybe some comparisons in in the imperial period later, but Rome was really uh, it should have sued for peace at this point. They they were in a, in a quite a hopeless situation, but the war dragged on. The Romans were not going to give up. So over the next fourteen years, Rome fought a war all around the Mediterranean, including in, in Italy, in Spain, in Greece, in Sicily, and then later in North Africa. Uh, it was sort of a, the Romans' plan basically was to beat the Carthaginians everywhere they could and finally force Hannibal out of Italy. So in Macedonia, the Macedonians uh, threw in their lot with the Carthaginians. The Romans didn't really make too much of an effort in Macedonia, their main plan was to just get the other Greek states who didn't want to be under Macedonian control to side with Rome and to uh, to keep the Macedonians busy in uh, the Balkans and in Greece. In uh, in Spain, the Romans sent Publius Cornelius Scipio after, well, they sent his father and his uncle first, Publius and Gnaeus, uh, both of whom were defeated and killed at the Battle of um, Upper Baetis in 211, and then only after that was uh, Scipio Jr. sent to Spain to rectify the situation. Scipio was able to wrest Spain from Carthaginian control over the years uh, from 209 until 206. He took their main, uh, the main Carthaginian base at, at Cartago Nova, New Carthage, in 209, and then he beat the Carthaginians at a series of battles by Kula, Cremona, and Ilipa in 206. Uh, at Ilipa, this is probably, many people consider Scipio's greatest uh, tactical victory. He was facing Hannibal's brother, Mago, and he beat him by first he delayed deploying his troops. You know, the, the Romans and the Carthaginians were in separate camps uh, facing one another. The Carthaginians one day presented their forces uh, arrayed in battle order. Scipio was going to give battle, but rather than marching his men out immediately, he sat around and uh, let the men have breakfast, let them let them get all ready and be nice and well-fed and, and rested. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously he had enough forces to know that the Carthaginians weren't going to try to attack his camp, but he really uh, made sure that his men were best prepared, marched out, fought the Carthaginians, and then he did this thing. If you look at the uh, schematic of the battle, he fought them on the flanks. He had his cavalry against their cavalry and his some infantry on the flanks fighting their flanks, but he kept his center pinned in the middle and didn't engage. This had the effect of pinning the Carthaginian center uh, who, you know, if the Carthaginian center should have pushed through and attacked 
the inside flanks of the Roman wings. But if they had done that, then the Roman center would have attacked forward and hit them in the flank. So he was able to nullify the, the Carthaginians' best troops by keeping some of his weaker troops back and only engaging them on the flanks and then routed them. Now, I want to give, we should give some other, uh, an overview of some of the other great Roman heroes of this war. So, Scipio Africanus, or Scipio Publius Coronius Scipio the Younger, later called Africanus because he won against Hannibal in Africa, as we'll see, is the most famous. And I mentioned already Fabius Conctator, Fabius the Delayer. The other great hero of this war was uh, Quintus Claudius Marcellus. Marcellus was sort of a Patton. He was in his own time considered to be a bit of an anachronism. He was a man who seemed like he belonged in the past. He, like Patton, he sort of romanticized uh, the one-on-one fight. He loved glory. Uh, more than usual. I mean, all these Romans loved glory, but Marcellus really loved glory. He was particularly famous for uh, an incident before the Punic War in a uh, battle against some uh, Gauls in northern Italy, where he had fought single-handedly the Gallic chieftain and killed him in battle, and then stripped his armor in front of the whole army and routed them. For this exploit, he was given uh, the highest prize in the Roman uh, system of awards. You've probably heard of a Roman triumph. This is where uh, a victorious general was allowed to march at the head of his troops through the city of Rome. Marcellus not only got the triumph, but he got the what was called the spoilia opima, the rich booty. It was the highest grade and it's you had to kill a Roman or kill an enemy in uh, kill the enemy general in battle and strip his armor in battle. Uh, Marcellus is the only person to have ever won this award. Uh, with well, there's two prior examples of Romulus is supposed to have won it, and uh, another uh, early Roman hero is supposed to have won it. But both of those are, are semi-legendary at best. Marcellus actually did it. Marcellus was sent to deal with the problem of Syracuse. Syracuse the, uh, in Sicily had revolted, or not revolted, but had basically taken Carthage's side. And this was important to the Romans because they needed to control Sicily in order to um, you know, cut off Hannibal in Italy and to maintain their their naval control of the Western Mediterranean and and um, particularly the passes or the, uh, the sea route to North Africa. This siege of Syracuse is famous because the Syracusans had the assistance of one of the greatest mathematical minds of all time uh, and greatest scientific minds of all, all time, Archimedes. Archimedes uh, in, it was in Syracuse during the siege, and he devised uh, a number of ingenious siege engines to help the Carthaginians, or not the Carthaginians, the, the Syracusans, defeat or hold off the Romans. Uh, a couple of things. One was he supposedly was able to build giant mirrors to reflect the sunlight in the eyes of the Roman troops. Another thing he's supposed to have done was to build uh, giant cranes with hooks on them that could reach out over the, the walls of Syracuse and pick up a Roman ship and turn it over or flip it, capsize it. So he was able to hold off the Romans for a long time and frustrate Marcellus, but eventually the Romans broke into the city. Now, before they did. Marcellus had been 
very specific with his men and said, I want Archimedes taken alive. Now in all the confusion of the sacking of the city, a Roman soldier is supposed to have broken into Archimedes's uh, room and found the old man sitting at his desk pondering some mathematical problem. Uh, supposedly, you know, of course, nobody knows what he was thinking about, but he was lost in thought. And the Roman soldier was furious and slew him right there. So we lost one of the greatest mathematical minds because somebody couldn't follow orders. Anyway, the Romans took Syracuse and they secured the situation in Spain and they nullified the Macedonians. Meanwhile, the war continued in Italy. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, even in the study of the Punic Wars, people often it's the we just focus on the three main victories of Hannibal uh, up to Cannae. But Hannibal continued giving the Romans big defeats uh, throughout the uh, following years. There are two battles of uh, Herodonia, uh, Silaros, and Canusium. All of these battles Hannibal inflicted between 7,000 and 20,000 casualties on the Romans. So they were still <laughs> doing the boldness before everything else strategy, and it wasn't really working. Uh, the Romans... After all of these defeats, uh, and especially after Cannae, they had taken all the survivors of Cannae and grouped them into special legions called Legiones uh, Canenses, is the uh, Cani legions, and these were like penal units. So these units were not allowed to uh, quarter in cities during winter, and they were basically just uh, given the worst of everything uh, to wipe out the blemish of their uh, fleeing in battle and not dying on the field like all the other Romans did at those uh, defeats. But eventually the Romans were able to push Hannibal down into Brutium. That's what's now Calabria, the toe of Italy. And Hannibal's brothers, uh, Mago and Hasdrubal, both tried to invade Italy. Hasdrubal came into Italy in 207. The Romans annihilated him in northern Italy. And Mago, after his defeat by Scipio at Ilippa, uh, sailed to Genoa and was defeated also in northern Italy. So Hannibal was uh, totally isolated. So it came down to uh, a debate between uh, Scipio and and Fabius and their, their supporters over what to do next. Scipio, of course, wanted to invade North Africa and bring the war to Carthage and end the war totally. Fabius thought the time wasn't right and, you know, was a much more cautious guy. And he thought that they needed to beat Hannibal in Italy first. The Roman government didn't really take a side, but Scipio was able to train an army in Sicily and the Senate authorized, they turned they authorized him to invade North Africa, but they weren't going to provide him any support. So he decided, all right, you know what, I'm going to take the initiative and invade North Africa. Uh, he did that in as uh, 204, 205 and got into North Africa. He had, meanwhile, during his time in Spain, managed to get in good with some of the peoples of North Africa. There were two chieftains in of the, uh, the, the Numidians, that is the people, the native people of North Africa today are probably the Berbers. Uh, these two chieftains were Masinessa and Sfax. Originally, Scipio had produced an allegiance with Sfax. Sfax later defected to the Carthaginians after the Carthaginians married off one of their aristocrat women to him. Um, but Scipio was able to get in good with 
Sfax's rival Messinessa. Now, this is very important because, as I mentioned earlier, the Romans were weak in cavalry. These North Africans were uh, very good cavalry troops, particularly light cavalry. The Numidians were known for uh, being very good on a, uh, on a horse and be, sort of having uh, javelin men riding around on horseback. So when he went into North Africa with uh, a Roman army, he was able to count on the support of these Numidians. Before Now, he defeated a, a by sort of treachery, was able to defeat a big Carthaginian force. He snuck upon them at night and annihilated them. And this emergency caused the Carthaginian Senate to recall Hannibal to Italy. So Hannibal followed orders, got in a boat, uh, got all of his men together, all of his uh, Italian veterans, or I should say veterans of the Italian war, and sailed back to North Africa. So this brings us to the, the culminating battle of the Second Punic War, that is the Battle of Zama, fought 19th October 202 BC. The remarkable thing about the battle is that Scipio had modeled his entire career on Hannibal. Scipio really admired Hannibal in a weird sort of way and had, as you can sort of tell from his victory at Alippa, had imitated Hannibal's tactics and understood the importance of cavalry and understood the importance of maneuver. So before the battle, uh, there's a, a couple stories worth telling. One is that a some Carthaginian spies were captured in the Roman camp and brought before Scipio. Now, normally, what do you do with spies? You execute them. But in the case of Scipio, he was so confident in the security of his camp and in the strength of his army that he decided to go one further and play some psychological games with the Carthaginians. So he ordered these spies to be taken around the Roman camp and shown everything and then returned to Hannibal. The next thing is this is like the day or a few days before the battle that happened on the day of the battle, the Carthaginians were lined up. The Romans were lined up. Scipio and Hannibal marched out or had arranged before to have a meeting. The two of them came out alone, um, maybe, I guess, an interpreter. Well, Scipio is supposed to have spoken Greek and written his memoirs in Greek. Hannibal also uh, wrote uh, campaign journals in Greek. Unfortunately, both of these are lost, so maybe they could communicate with each other in Greek. And But before they even talked, they just looked at one another because of the mutual admiration for each other as, as leaders. And they had a brief conversation and and walked away and then uh, had the battle. Hannibal, because he was back in his home territory, he was now able to get a ton of elephants. He had about 80 elephants. And he had a huge force. He lined them up in three big lines. And then the Romans, uh, Scipio had also arranged his men in such a way that he could counter Hannibal's elephants. Hannibal attacked with the elephants. Scipio was able to, the Romans were able to drive the elephants to the back and, and uh, either kill them or, or cause them to panic and flee back to their own lines. So the Romans nullified that. But the big decisive thing for the Romans was their superiority in cavalry. Now with Messinessa on their side and with some Roman uh, trained cavalry, Scipio was able to win the battle on the flanks, drive away the Carthaginians, uh, Carthaginian horse, and then 
the cavalry is able to come back and attack the Carthaginians in the rear. So we have basically exactly what happened at Cannae, but the two greatest command, you know, there was no Vero on the losing side. You had a great commander on one side, a great commander on the other. And it just came down to uh, better cavalry and the Roman discipline that uh, was able to win the day. So after this, the Carthaginians were forced to, to sue for peace. Scipio himself negotiated the terms. He demanded a huge indemnity, this time 10,000 talents of gold. So uh, in paid in installments over 50 years. So about three times the total uh, indemnity of the Hearst War. And then also Carthage had to agree to not have a fleet save 10 triremes. So triremes were weaker than quinqueremes. This is a, a sort of an older uh, ship style. Think of destroyers versus, or I don't know, uh, uh, wooden ships versus dreadnoughts, or maybe not that different, but a, a, a poor ship type. Basically, Carthage had no, had no fleet and had to pay a huge indemnity. But Scipio did not demand that Hannibal himself be captured or killed. He Hannibal actually went on after the war to have a career as a Carthaginian statesman, much to the ire of the Romans. The Romans were not pleased with the uh, arrangement. They thought that Scipio ought to, ought to have demanded more from the Carthaginians. One of Scipio's main rivals, uh, Cato the Elder, who was about 30 at the time, uh, thought that the Romans should just completely destroy Carthage and... 60 years later, he would get his wish when the Romans finally did totally destroy Carthage. Uh, this is Cato the Elder, who's famous for ending all of his speeches with uh, Carthago de Lenda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. Catherum Canseo, he would say, I, uh, otherwise my opinion is that Carthage should be destroyed, even if he was talking about something else. But Scipio didn't get the appreciation that he deserved, uh, or at least he thought. This is probably for political reasons. Uh, he was such a popular and great man that other Romans felt somewhat threatened by him. He was later charged with uh, financial, with, with taking bribes. He uh, allegedly taken a bribe from Antiochus, uh, the one of the the successors to Alexander uh, in in Syria. Probably not true, but that was the the charge levied against him, and, and he was forced to live outside Rome and basically just li live in obscurity. He uh, he had because of his uh, his resentment against the the country that was so ungrateful to him. His tombstone is said to have uh, been inscribed with uh, "Patria ingrata, ne osa quidem habebis." Uh, in great fatherland, you will not even have my bones. But other outcomes. So Hannibal eventually was forced to flee Carthage and the Romans, and he had a, a career going across the Eastern Mediterranean and, and being a, a sort of military consultant, mercenary for different uh, Eastern potentates. Eventually the Romans tracked him down in a villa, sort of Osama bin Laden style, and killed him. Uh, but geopolitically, the Romans, you know, this was when Rome went from being just a Mediterranean or a uh, Italian power to being a true Mediterranean power and, and having total dominance of the Western Mediterranean. They got control of, uh, you know, they still, they, after the first war, they got control of Sicily and Sardinia, as, as we've mentioned. But now they effectively had, well, they didn't have control of North Africa. Carthage was still there, but they had total control of the sea. And then they also had control of at least the coastline of Spain.
But the Second Punic War really launched Rome on its career of greatness. The two centuries following the defeat of Hannibal saw the Roman expansion into the Eastern Mediterranean, where the Romans defeated and eventually conquered the successor states to Alexander's empire, so in Macedon and in Syria and in Egypt. And Rome really uh, was able to sort of ride its... Uh, ride the what it had built up over uh, the course of the Punic Wars and even the centuries leading up to the century or two leading up to the Punic Wars. Rome benefited from its very uh, solid military organization and political organization. And uh, it really was the best uh, organized and and had the most material of of any uh, culture in the Mediterranean. But Already at the end of the Second Punic War, you're starting to see some of the breaks that would cause problems in the first century BC as the Roman Republic broke apart. One uh, was that, and it should be obvious from the Second Punic War, that it wasn't really possible to lead a huge enterprise like the war against Carthage without centralized political control. So we saw the Romans had a, sort of a mechanism for dealing with this in electing a dictator, which they did with Fabius Maximus. But really, I mean, Scipio Africanus was the main guy leading the war, especially in its later stages, even though he was only a consul. And he did so without really the full backing of the Roman government. Uh, and certainly after the war, he wasn't given his just due because people were worried that he might himself uh, want to make himself king or become the first man in Rome. So, you know, that that it still was working out OK for them when they were just a an Italian power or even a Western Mediterranean power. But by the time Rome was a, a pan Mediterranean power, that uh, decentralized organization, that Republican system wasn't really going to be enough to keep them together and to keep uh, pushing their enterprises. What about the you know strategic questions here? What about why why did Hannibal lose the war? There is a number of times, particularly after Cannae, where Hannibal should have been able to win the war, many historians have argued. In fact, one of Hannibal's own officers, Marhabal, said to Hannibal after Cannae, Hannibal, you know how to win a victory, but you don't know how to use one. This was because Marhabal and the other officers were pushing Hannibal to go and attack Rome. Why did Hannibal not go and attack Rome and force it to its knees? Probably because Hannibal did not feel that he would be able to win a siege of Rome. Uh, he didn't have enough men to really block off the city, and he knew that, sort of similar to the Germans before Moscow in 1941, he wouldn't be able to, if you, even if he could cut it off, even if he could capture it, that he didn't think that would bring an end to Roman resistance, and in fact could put him in a, a um, an exposed position. So, you know, Hannibal, you know, what can we say about Hannibal? He really he made the best of a bad hand. He should not have had as much success as he did. The invasion of Italy from the north was a stroke of genius. Uh, his employment of his hodgepodge army and his many victories were works of genius. And But you know, just like Napoleon or Hitler, his personal genius was not enough to overcome the tide of history and the uh, material and moral strength of his enemy. 
comparing uh, to compare Hannibal to Napoleon, it's uh, some very similar things jump out right away. One is that his main adversary, uh, well, in Hannibal's case, Wellington, and Han- sorry, in Hannibal's case, Scipio, and Napoleon's case, Wellington, both studied their adversary and studied his tactics, and both of them uh, sort of warmed up and got uh, won their uh, won their spurs fighting in Spain. It's a you know curious coincidence, and in the case of World War Two, or the World Wars, I mean the the second and first and second Punic Wars really give a almost direct analogy with World War Two, with the defeated side having to pay huge indemnities and being in the strategically weaker position, and then getting a leader of genius who was able to almost win the second war and turn the tide. This is probably why uh, Dr. Goebbels wrote. The, uh, the piece that I referenced at the beginning of this, uh, his article, which I'll post, explaining how Germany's situation was, you know, in 19, late 19, or uh, spring of 1945, was comparable to that of Rome. And Dr. Goebbels really makes the point that a, it isn't just a matter of material. It's a matter of moral. I mean, this goes back to Clausewitz, that combat power is the product of your uh, your willpower times the available means. So in the case of Rome, uh, or in the case of Carthage, you could, you could look at it from either side, but Rome may have had the advantage in material, especially in the second Punic war. Uh, but Hannibal was really able to almost beat Rome despite his weakness in material. And the same way after many, many, many defeats at Rome's will didn't break and that's why it was able to carry the day the main sort of lesson from the roman point of view i think is that rome won the second the both punic wars because it was able to adapt to circumstances in the first war it was able to build a navy in the second war it was able to master the cavalry arm and that really was the uh, the decisive factor because in every battle where rome had at least adequate cavalry it was able to win uh its infantry was always top shelf but uh against hannibal he was able to to sort of dodge the main blow of the infantry and 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 put them in a weak position and then finally beat them but once he was up against a, a commander of uh, similar genius to him uh, to himself he wasn't able to beat them so Roman steadfastness won the day, but it 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 took a Scipio to do it. The book, uh, the best book for Scipio Africanus that I know of, uh, I read years ago. I read was the first adult book I ever read was B. H. Little Heart, uh, Scipio Africanus Greater Than Napoleon. Uh, you can get that's a I mean just to list off some books that are, are worth reading about the subject. It's funny you can get that. Uh, B.H. Little Heart book with a foreword by none other than Enoch Powell, the famous uh, Rivers of Blood uh, speech British politician. The uh, Another couple modern books, uh, Hannibal by Leonard Cottrell, I also read when I was in high school. Uh, it's an older book, but uh, a very good overview of, of Hannibal the man and uh, his war. And then regarding the early history of Rome, the traditional account is by Livy. Uh, Livy was a Roman historian. He is generally not regarded by specialists as being the most reliable, but he is, uh, for the early period of Roman history and also for the Second Punic War, 
uh, one of the main sources. The other main source is Polybius, a Greek historian uh, who's considered much better and, and uh, much higher standard, comparable to Thucydides or Tacitus in his uh, objectivity. And then the other big source uh, from a couple centuries, you know, both Livy and Polybius are writing after the war, but Polybius only decades after. The other one is Plutarch writing in the first century AD, um, but Plutarch was using older sources. And he covers the life of uh, Scipio Africanus and uh, also uh, Marcellus. And I think, all, yeah, he also has one on, on Fabius Conctator. Uh, he doesn't have a life of Hannibal since he was only writing the lives of Grecians and Romans. But you, if you read between the lines on, uh, if you read uh, Plutarch's biographies of some of the Roman generals of that war and Roman uh, statesmen, then you can find out about the life of Hannibal. The other, uh, as far as getting a objective picture of early Rome, there is one book uh, that I've read most of and I've uh, heard uh, Dr. Kevin McDonald sing the praises of. It is uh, A Critical History of Early Rome by Gary Forsyth. Uh, that's a much drier one and much more analytical, but uh, it is sort of interesting to try to see how the scholar Forsyth like, pieces together the bits of, of, and, uh, of early Roman history and tries to arrive at, at an objective historical view. My final point, as always, this show is not about just learning about the past. This is not a lifestyle show. There are many uh, people who are adjacent to this movement who try to do things or substitute things like learning or working out or uh, lifestyle choices for political activity. Now, while working out and learning things and being healthy and all that is very good and is important, it's the first thing you have to do. You have to then go to the next step and be involved in politics and to make some use of it. This history isn't just about reading about the past and and admiring it. It's about following its examples. So with the Romans, the Roman people became a people through its struggles with the Gauls, and it became a great people by its defeat of Carthage. And we see this in that the Romans were able to lose 70,000 men in a day and get up and keep fighting. Right now, America, you know, for all of Joe Biden and everybody else's bluster, America probably couldn't lose 100 men in a day and keep fighting. And that should tell you something. There is no American people. There, ha- there is not any more, not in the sense of a, of a real people. Maybe 100 years ago there was, but there is no American people. The future American people is being built right now and is being built around this movement. So if you want to be a part of that, you ought to join up. That's all I have to say. Until the final victory. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen, mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, schmettern die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch? Jugend zwingt es doch. Wir marschieren für Hitler durch Nacht und durch Not, denn wir fahren der Jugend für Freiheit.
Jugend, wir sind der Zukunftssoldaten. Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Ja, durch unsere Fäuste fällt, wer sich uns entgegenstellt. Jugend, Jugend, wir sind der Zukunftssoldaten. Jugend, Jugend, Träger der kommenden Taten. Führe, wir gehören dir, wir Kameraden dir. Unser Vater, lass das uns voran. Wir marschieren gehilft, durch Nacht und durch Brot, mit der Fahne der 